you put the bass music on at a fashion show, it's loud. Things just tremble and shake. Well, this time the ceiling shook, and the plaster started coming down on the runway on Linda, Cindy, Naomi, Claudia, all the one-named supermodels of the day. They brushed their shoulders and just kept walking. And uh, when plaster landed in the laps of Susie Mankis from the International Herald Tribune and Carrie Donovan, who was the fashion editor of the Times, they wrote the next day that we live for fashion, we don't want to die for it. Good morning. I'm Matt Rubel, and this is Retails from the Frontline. We are here in New York City with one of the icons of fashion design, someone who behind the scenes has platformed design in the fashion world for many decades and done it with a great authority and with a great hand. And that is Fern Malice, who was the executive director of the Council of Fashion Designers of America and has also brought 7th Avenue to 6th Avenue, brought it around the world and really created an energy around an organization that celebrates the 500 leading designers uh, in the United States. And so welcome, Fern. It's great to have you with us this morning. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You grew up in Brooklyn. Then you came across into this world of fashion. How did you, when you first came over, understand, was it fashion or was it something else? What excited you and got you interested in the trend-related apparel business? Well, I think I grew up in a very colorful family. Uh, My dad worked in the garment district. He was in the scarf business. Um, He was a salesman, and I probably knew 800 ways to tie a scarf and had more scarves than anybody you could shake a stick at. And he had two brothers in in the industry, and they would have lunch every Tuesday, no matter what. And I would look forward to going to lunch and going to work with my dad any chance I could long before Gloria Steinem named Take Your Daughters to Work Days. And I would go to his showroom and I would just gaga at the women in the back designing the scarves before they had computers, you know, painting every little paisley and every color, um, every little pattern. And then my dad was always, you know, and I say this with the most loving respect, a garmento, in that, you know, he had the best jokes. You know, he was always selling to the to the department stores, New York and the metro area with his territory. So I'd join him for lunch with his buyers or the fashion directors of the stores. And I just was enamored of that. I loved it. And I loved clothing. I loved dressing up. So it just became part of my DNA. Do you remember the first time you actually got to talk with a designer about design and what that meant to you? I just always felt like I was around designers. I knew some young designers early on in my career. I started at Mademoiselle Magazine. I won a contest. I was a guest editor in the years that that was a very big deal. In fact, the very first designer that we interviewed at Mademoiselle during my guest editorship was Stan Herman, who was still doing Mr. Mord at the time. And, you know, 20 some odd years late, 20, 25 years later, our paths reconnect at CFDA. I've always just respected the talent of designers. I've respected the creativity. So the creative process was always something I I, I was comfortable around. So the creative process is something that's really fascinating and has evolved so much over the years. But when when you started out and kind of got exposed to apparel design or 
or cut and sew design? Was it sequestered to the back room and not celebrated? And it was more kind of the colorful personalities of people like your father in the front room that really uh, gained attention. And and what what kind of motivated you to start to actually help to bring design more to the forefront? I was the fashion director at Gimbel's East. So I was interfacing with designers and having to decide with the buyers what to buy and what the trends were. I mean, I always was involved in in those aspects of it. And early on, I had a PR job helping Shara Vary and Selma Weiser when she just had the one store on Broadway. And Mark Jacobs was a Tell people a, a little bit clerk. about what Cheravari was at that moment in time. Everything in the digital world today, there's so many new things that are coming out that represent the leading edge of an idea. Cheravari was the leading edge of an idea at that moment in time. Tell people a little bit about what Cheravari it was. Cheravari was a store created by a woman named Selma Weiser who was a true merchant at the core. I mean, she just, she was a visionary. She saw it. She had one small store on the west side, and that expanded, but she was the first person that brought, I think, Yoji Yamamoto and various Japanese designers. I think she was the first one who really had Armani even, Sonia Riquiel, Missoni. I mean, all the great brands that just become so commonplace now. But, you know, the Japanese were the big ones for her at the at the beginning. And it was a visionary, wonderful story. People like her, like Geraldine Stutz, who ran Henry Mendel in its heyday when it was a really the most exclusive, fabulous, stylish store in the world on 57th Street. Well, they created a beautiful walking street of... A street of shops. A street of shops, which was really the precursor to the shop and shop idea. Um, and it really happened in a more casual, elegant, curated way. So she curated her own avenue which then became the avenue of uh, Henry Bendel. Mm-hmm. You, you worked at Mademoiselle, which is fantastic. You worked in a, a retail store. You got exposed through wholesale and the different areas of, of what you've done. And then you got a chance to bring together with Stan Herman, who was the president of the Council for Fashion Designers of America called CFTA. You got a chance to bring those people together in a way that would celebrate design. What were you trying to achieve and what lasting mark you all created in elevating the work of the CFDA? Well, you know, I came to CFDA after also about a 15-year career in the interior and architecture world, running a big design center, the IDCNY, the International Design Center in New York. And in that capacity, I organized an industry, interior designers, architects, furniture and showrooms, And that was a fabulous opportunity and experience for me. And when the CFDA job seemed to be available, because I, thanks to my dad and growing up in that family, I I was weaned on Women's Wear Daily. So I would read it every day and always had a subscription my whole life. And I would see that the CFDA was looking for a new director and looking for somebody. It was just after they had done a huge AIDS benefit called Seventh on Sale which was about time that the CFDA addressed the AIDS epidemic and horror that was devastating the industry. And I went to that event and I was blown away. I had a very inexpensive dessert ticket because that's all I could afford after this big gala dinner. And and everybody was there doing their, their thing. Ralph, Tommy, Donna, Calvin, they all had their own shops within a shop in the armory for four days. It was crazy time. They raised 
$5 million, which was a lot of money at the time to give away. And then everybody at CFDA pooped out. And so they were looking for somebody. And I kept reading these things. And I threw my hat in the ring at the very last minute after they had interviewed hundreds of people or seen hundreds of resumes and interviewed maybe 40, 50 people. And, you know, without belaboring that whole story of how that came to be, I was selected to be the next executive director. It was March 26th was my birthday, the day that I had the board meeting where I was officially selected. And I said I'd start in the middle of April so I can finish up things I had to do. And that was when it was market week or loosely called fashion week. And at that time, if there were 50 shows, they were in 50 different locations. Nobody really talked to each other. I mean, Ruth Finley did do the fashion calendar, but if you were uptown, the next one could be downtown. You could be in the Pierre Hotel during that 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock show. And and then somebody was having a bar mitzvah there that night. You had to take everything down. And if somebody rented it the next day, you'd set it all up again. It was very chaotic. And Michael Kors had a show in an empty loft space in a floor in a building that their showroom was in in, in Chelsea, a raw concrete space, which designers love raw concrete spaces. And the if you put the, so did the business people. <laughs> they didn't cost that much. That's right. <laughs> and uh, you know, if you put the bass music on at a fashion show, it's it's loud. Things just tremble and shake. Well, this time the ceiling shook, and the plaster started coming down on the runway. On Linda, Cindy, Naomi, Claudia, all the one named supermodels of the day, they brushed their shoulders and just kept walking. And uh, when plaster landed in the laps of Susie Mankis from the International Herald Tribune and Carrie Donovan, who was the fashion editor of the Times, um, they wrote the next day that we live for fashion, we don't want to die for it. It, it was the shot heard from Sarajevo that started a big drastic So change. Fashion Week really didn't come out of some major, oh my gosh, we have to do something, and the designers came together. It really came out of the sky was falling, yeah, and the ceiling was falling, absolutely. and we have to get pragmatic. People are here for a certain amount of time. It wasn't like some pre-planned thing of let's no. make a big event no. to make an international shot heard around the world for design. It was really just a pragmatic business it's thing. It's how most things happen from something negative and, and a bad experience that something causes a change. That was not on the agenda when I interviewed for this job and talked to people and talked to Calvin and talked to Bill Blass and everybody about what they were looking for. At the board meeting when they hired me, it was about raising funds and um, all sorts of things. It was never about, and your job is going to be, we think it's time to organize a fashion week. Now, this accident really caused people to start thinking about it. And the same season or the next season, Isaac Mizrahi had a show in a big, big loft in Soho, uh, one of those spaces that had like 1,200 people in it at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Everybody got in, and if you had a ticket to an Isaac show at those days, you were the coolest person in town. And everybody's sitting there, and all the lights blew. It was a power failure, and it was frightening. People were smoking in those days, so people had lighters and were lighting things up, and uh, a lot of photographers had their battery packs on. The lighting designer had left to go to another show, and everybody sat there and waited till the backup generators were, were came and plugged in. Nobody was going to leave till they saw Isaac's show. And so things like that were happening. And I said, this is crazy. And my job, I said, I think my job description changed. It was at the time, this in the early 90s, there was had been a real estate crash and boom, you know, everything went sour in the late 80s and the early 90s. And so a lot of buildings had stopped being built 
stopped in mid-construction because funding stopped. And I was looking at every empty building where there were spaces, every empty parking lot, every pier, places where we could put something together and create something. Who did you get to really back you in this idea early on? I mean, who were the ones who immediately saw people were in lofts in Soho or at the Pierre Ballroom? I mean, you couldn't have had more different, you know, kind of venues for how people wanted to position themselves and put themselves up together. And each one's trying to stand out and be different. So now to bring them all together and all these competitors who also have large senses of self, some might call that egos, and, and great talent, but to bring them together so that that expression becomes one in aggregate, a voice of many creative voices. How did, who who well, kind of helped you? Who kind of helped you drive that? In I the mean, beginning? I tried to be diplomatic about it and pragmatic about it, and it was a business decision that this would drive business better. The cost of putting on a show would be reduced if we could amortize the costs, and people didn't have to. Like I said, reset up the chairs and bring in their own security and bring in um, lighting and sound and and rigging and everything. Uh, this was a this was an economic decision in, in many cases. I mean, and it did get spurred by the the fashion show that we as CFDA did in the summer of '92 for Bill Clinton when he was the Democratic nominee and the convention was in New York. We put on a fashion show for all of the attendees and all the press, you know, every industry did something to celebrate that, that week. And we put a tent in the Central Park and every designer, I'm talking Oscar, Bill, Ralph, Donna, Calvin, Nicole Miller, Tommy, Joseph Abood, Isaac, uh, Todd Oldham, Anna Swee, Diane von Furstenberg, everybody, they all participated, had clothing in the show and at the end of the show walked down the runway with their model. It was fantastic. And we all sat, stood on the lawn. They all looked at me and they said, is this what you're talking about? A tent like this? And I said, this is exactly what I'm talking about. You know, and these are several of these biggest names in the industry were doing shows in their showrooms on 557th Avenue, which was the, the you know, the palace, the, the building where all the top names were. Yeah. And you make it sound better than it actually was. It was the palace in people's minds but, but it, was, yeah, it was a building it was a lot of showrooms but it but with you know, a when very you, industrial elevator to go up yeah it was a who's who of american fashion but those showrooms were not massive they were not high ceilinged and they were they were death traps and it's extraordinary that more accidents didn't happen in the showrooms that were having shows in there there were no fire exits there were no legitimate aisles there were editors who were stuck in freight elevators and had to be pulled out by the fire department there were problems one after another. And it was like fashion shows like that were like a rave. You know, if you saw a crowd outside going in, nobody knew what it was about or what was happening. Uh, it sounds like the whole thing was happenstance. And in bringing it together, it was kind of, okay, you had this great business background. You walk in, you see that it's very hard to manage for the buyers who are coming in all over, having to run all over, as well as for the press. And these are people that you have to please, as well as making it so the designers can put their best foot forward or their models can put their best mm-hmm. foot forward. A political event happens and people see it can work. And it's also the model that existed in Paris and Milan very successfully. So why weren't we doing it here before earlier? We're supposed to be leaders. Why were we behind? Because there was nobody leading it. I mean, in Paris, it was the Chambre Syndicale, the French association that the designers belonged to. In Milan, it was the Camera della Moda, the similar Italian counterpart, 
even the British Fashion Council, that was a little more scattered at the time. But the CFDA just didn't, that just wasn't part of their agenda at the time. It was at a time when the Europeans were starting to look at the American designers. You know, they all went overseas with their fragrances, opened the doors to markets around the world uh, long before their clothing did. And so they were all at a point where they were ready to step on the world stage. New York was always considered, you know, copying what waited till Paris and Milan that showed their collections, and then New York designers would do theirs, which was never the truth, but that's what people believed. It was a decision to, let's make this happen, let's make this work. We would have meetings every other month, every other week. There were a lot of people who were against it, producers and people who did all the rigging, and because they got more money if they did it a hundred times instead of one time. But they all saw the potential. And I'll tell you, Calvin Klein was important to this. Uh, we had a meeting presenting plans, drawings, everything, explaining it. Everybody was there, all the different players involved, and some young designer in the back row somewhere. Well, why should we do this? I mean, you know, it's all about the space we're in. The space really is, you know, tells the story. And, you know, and is Calvin going to be there? And so, thank God, Calvin was sitting right there in the front row. And I said, just a minute, Calvin, would you like to come up and talk about this? And he came to the podium and said, I absolutely am going to be there. He said, this will only work if we're all there. He went on very passionately about what it meant to work together and do this as the American fashion industry, putting its best foot forward. So the American fashion industry in this, I'll call it herding of cats, situationally that you're able to do with great leadership from people who are the gifted talents over the years of Calvin Klein, people like that, who really have stepped forward and said, no, let's be one. You did that. It came together. Fashion Week has lifted the American design aesthetic. What do you think is the most positive and interesting thing that has rippled off of creating a week in celebration of American fashion? Gosh, well, I think there's a lot of things that rippled off that. I mean, it really put America on the map. Um, And especially once the seasons changed and America decided to make the great leap forward and go ahead of the European calendar. It used to be the last country to show. And now New uh, New York is the first. Uh, And that was a huge, huge change in everything. Thank you, Helmut Lang, who made us crazy doing that. But it brought millions and millions of dollars into the economy in New York. I mean, there were so many repercussions of that. I mean, look at Bryant Park now. Look what's built up around Bryant Park. All of that came out of the Fashion Week experience of the tents being there. A new restaurant opens, they wait till Fashion Week. Every club opens when it's Fashion Week. Um, Every new opportunity. I mean, there's so many things going on. When Fashion Week happens, retail has changed so much over the past decade. uh, And so so Fashion Week was, I mean, first there were fashion shows to show off the clothing that the buyers would then buy for the next season. And then you wanted to glamorize it so that people (laughs) would want to buy your line. Now we've moved to there are fewer buyers of those clothing because you have stores to buy them for. Well, because you have your own store, you have your own website, you have your own mobile way of dealing with things. And so if you were to come back today and say, I'm going to redefine the way in which we celebrate American fashion, what would be the way in which you would bring fashion in an aggregated way? to create 
that idea of contemporary fashion week today? There's a lot of different ideas that could be put forth. But I think that, you know, if a designer came to me today, I'd probably say, don't spend the money you're spending on a show. I think it's a lot of money that people are spending. And I don't think that that's necessarily getting the best bang for their buck anymore. Right now, when you go to a show, nobody knows who's in the front row anymore. You know, nobody's even looking at the show. They're looking at the show through a three-inch screen, two inches on their, in their hand. They're missing the essence and aura of really just experiencing the show and seeing it and getting a, a sense of an entire collection and an idea. We do want to ask you one other question, oh. which is American design. How does one really define American design today and what its role is in the fashion world for the next decade? I'm not sure that I can define what it is anymore. It's changed so much. I mean, it used to be, we used to say it was sportswear. I mean, I don't even know if people know what sportswear means anymore. What did it mean to you? Well, it meant to me more casual. It meant separates. It meant not a little dress, little cocktail dress or evening. I mean, there's still a lot of American designers who do gorgeous gowns and evening wear um, and do dresses, but... I mean, work clothes. America used to be... It was living for life. I mean, America really was the country that defined fashion to live for your life and then made it so that you could change and constantly update your wardrobe. Absolutely. And that you could wear clothing to work. You know, Mark Zuckerberg changed what work clothes look like. Now a hoodie takes you to work. All the J. Crews and all those stores used to dress people who go to work. There's no dress code anymore. So I mean, America's become the casual, I think, way more casual than other countries in its clothing and, and impression of, of clothes. It's the casualization of everything. So the evolution of fashion design in America has gone from the garment center in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, where great people in the back room were bringing their artistry to bear with wonderful salespeople and shops cutting and sewing the stuff out in Brooklyn or some other place, all the way through from it being a company to a designer's name to the designers being independent to coming together, redefining sportswear and bringing it to the streets and to the many to today, just like in much uh, of other parts of retail, it's now going through a change. And that change is still in flux. And so how we bring that to the consumers and American designers is something that we know you'll be a part of in the next chapter of things that you and the great leaders of our fashion industry do. Yes, thank you. I, I hope so. But I mean, I, didn't want, I don't want to sound too negative about all of it. I mean, Fashion Week is just starting up this week. There is a lot of talent and there'll be a lot of, there's a lot of really creative designers going to be showing and they'll be showing, I'm not sure what, but I'm looking forward to it. And there, there is a ton of creativity in this country. And I think the CFDA is doing a lot of work to support the creative talent. And there's a lot of programs. I think the thing that I'm, that's very interesting now is all of the designers who are focusing on sustainability trying to do something that will help save this planet because the clothing is a big part of the problem and the manufacture of it and the making of it and the amount of water used for the fashion industry, you know, the amount of dyes and denims and stuff that are bad for the environment. I think that that's the most exciting thing to happen in many years in the fashion industry to see how many companies right from the top, from the caring and their top brands and designers to young independents in Brooklyn and everywhere else, 
who really are caring about that and making a difference. So as we wrap up here today, one of the things that I walk away with is the manifestation of that which brings fashion to life is the need for life to be shown through great design and through great fashion, whether that's an aesthetic or whether that's a function. And it's how you live your life. And we have seen a great life come through Fern Malice, who has joined us here today on Retails from the Frontline. And we want to thank you so much for the great things that you've done to kind of create uh, an amalgamation and an identity for the American fashion industry as it changes and evolves here in New York City. I'm Matt Rubel, and this is Retails from the Frontline. Line.